Father, you have created us for <coughs> communion with you. You've created us for intimacy with you and with other people. You've called us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to love our neighbors ourselves. One of the beautiful ways we can do that, or two of the beautiful ways we can do that, are through the vocations of singleness and marriage. And God, we pray specifically right now as we consider this calling of singleness. God, I thank you that you see every single person in this room, married or single, but particularly those who are single this morning. You see their pain, you see their loneliness, you see their joys, their opportunities. And God, you have sanctified this as a holy calling. And so God, would you invite us to see the beauty of singleness, to acknowledge the the pain that's there, but also the potential for this to be a prophetic sign of your kingdom in this world. Help us to live faithfully in whatever callings we may find ourselves in this morning, married or single, to embrace both as your call to us, to seek to be faithful to respond in love and service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing this series uh, this morning on uh, wholeheartedness in our vocations. And I'm just going to be honest with you, one of the first struggles in trying to uh, prepare this sermon is, what do you call this vocation? We're going to talk today about singleness, but I don't like that word. I hate that word. I, I hate that word because singleness is a word of negation. It implies not something else. Like singleness means, to, in my mind, it's like it's an absence. It's being alone. It's not being coupled with somebody else. If you look up the dictionary definition of singleness, it literally says, it's kind of depressing. One, solitary, alone. Uh, it usually means unmarried or not married. So it's just not like a great word. I don't love the word. What, the other option historically of the church has been celibacy. I don't love that word either. A whole, I mean, it's kind of a weird word. Um, celibacy, again, rep- implies just like sexual abstinence, but for what purpose? You're not sexual. You're not having sex. Uh, another option there uh, along celibacy could be eunuch. You're a eunuch. Uh, not a great word for me either. I mean, it's biblical, but not probably very helpful. Again, kind of weird. So I, I don't know what to call this. The be- I'm just going to try to redeem a really bad word, singleness, because that's kind of how we talk about this. But as it's going to become clear, I don't think singleness means being alone. Um, and I don't think that's what Paul's saying. But this is a really important topic. I mean, historically, Soma has been a community that ranges somewhere between, I think currently we're about 40% single. Uh, At times, it's been as high as 70% or even 80% single. We have single uh, men and women that serve on our board of directors. We have singles that have, at various seasons, served on our staff. We have deacons that are single. And so this is really important for us to be able to understand this vocation of singleness. And it's often not a way that we think about our singleness— as a vocation. But it is. It's a call from God. It's holy. It's sacred. It's hard. So let's just start by looking at this call to singleness. What is it? What does it mean to be called to be single? Why would Paul say this is better than being married? As he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 7. This vocation is very simply uh, the response to God's call to love him and to love other people through our singleness. That's what it means to to carry the vocation of singleness, to respond to God's voice and his call to singleness is to love God with our singleness, to love others and to serve others through our singleness. So just to give you some context here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
Paul lays out two ways to live the Christian life. You can either be married, he says, or you can be single. First half of the chapter, he deals with being married. Second half, he deals with being single. And here's what we need to see about these vocations. Both are vocations. We're going to talk about marriage next week. Both are vocations, and they're, they're neighboring vocations. They're not opposites. They're not in hostility with one another. They're not contradicting one another. They're not competing. One's not better than the other. There's no hierarchy here, even though that's often how it's presented in the church right now. Both have equal dignity and equal legitimacy and equal honor, according to Paul. And, and Paul is at pains to help us see that singleness and marriage are both a gift. They're both a gift. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. If you back up there at the top of the passage, talking about marriage and then talking about singleness, Paul says, I wish that all people were as I am. Paul's single, he's saying. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift. Another has that gift. Now, if you're single, you might want to just like throw up right now. Okay, I'm tired of hearing people say singleness is a gift. Doesn't feel like a gift. A lot of single people talk about singleness as unwanted singleness. Singleness doesn't feel like a gift, especially the older that you get as you remain single. You get beyond 30 and you get into 35 and 40 and it doesn't feel as much like a, a gift. The gift of singleness can often feel like a white elephant gift that you didn't choose and that you wish you could return. You've been conscripted into singleness against your will, held hostage. Here's the thing about the gift, though. Notice Paul says both are a gift. Both marriage and singleness require gifting. So what we need to say here is that gifting is not a superpower given to single people. Like Some people are like, I don't have the gift, so I'm not called to be single. It's not like that. It's not some superpower for those who just don't want to be married or are not sexual. This, this word gift here is the word charism, which is used throughout the book of 1 Corinthians as a, a supernatural gifting of God's presence and an ability to love God and love others, to build up the body. So to be gifted is not to have a superpower. To be gifted is to be called and given the presence of God for the benefit of other people, as long as you're single. So it's not just, well, I don't have the gift, so I, I, I can't be single. It's no, if, how do you know that you're called to be single? You're single. How do you know that you're called to be married? I, I'm married. Her name's Emily. I'm, I'm married. I'm called, to be, I'm called to be married. You're called to be single if you're single. It's a gift that's given by God. Marriage is one expression of that. Singleness is another expression of that. But all require a gift if we're going to love each other well, if we're going to serve each other well. We must have the gifting of the Holy Spirit living in us to show up well in our singleness and to show up well in marriage. And here's the thing that Paul, basically his main point with this call to singleness is simply this. Singleness is about singularity. Very simply, that's what he's saying. And he gives two reasons. One I'm going to talk about now. I want to come back to the other one at the end. The main thing that Paul is saying is singleness is about being called to singularity. Singularity of vision, singularity of mission, and singularity of loyalty to God and to God's kingdom. That's why Paul says, I, I want you to be free from anxiety. I want you to be free from concern. 
It's going to be hard. There's difficulties if you get, mar- if you get married, Paul says. I want you to be able to be, ha- have an undivided devotion to God. I want you to be set apart solely for God, to give your best time, your best energy to building up God's kingdom, to partnering with God to bring about his life and flourishing in the world. So Paul here, when he says, you know, the person who's married should live as if they're not married, you know, don't buy anything, don't weep, don't mourn. That's not the main, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying here, he's not telling us don't buy things, don't get married, don't weep, don't experience joy. In other places, he actually says you should get married, you should buy things, you should weep, you should experience joy. But he's saying as we enter into these vocations, we enter into them differently. We enter, we enter into them with a newfound kind of freedom. And so we don't buy to possess. We don't pursue happiness or joy for its own sake. We don't weep as those who don't have hope. And we don't get married as an identity statement. We don't find marriage to be the ultimate identity statement. We don't pursue marriage for the sake of marriage. Or we don't remain single as an identity statement either. Singleness, Paul says, is about being free. It's about a freedom to God, about a freedom to pursue God and to pursue other people with a non-anxious presence. Paul says, I don't want you to be anxious. And being married brings a certain kind of anxiety, a certain kind of concern. He says, you're going to have to worry about pleasing your spouse. You're going to have to worry about raising children and paying bills and things of that nature. There's, just, there's a lot of stress. Amen, married people? There's a lot of stress to being married. So don't think that getting married is going to end your loneliness or make it easier for you, Paul says. In some ways, it makes it harder because you're divided, always having to choose between God and others and your spouse. Marriage, Paul says, can be a distraction. And that's why in the history of the church, there's been a a valuing of this vocation of singleness. Throughout the history of the church, I would say, though, it's come in waves, Christians have tended to elevate either marriage or singleness at the expense of the other. Since the Protestant Reformation in 1517, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, marriage has kind of taken front billing. Marriage has been been publicly and institutionally celebrated and taught and supported as the primary way to honor God as a Christian. And I would say, if you look at the way that our society is arranged, in many ways, this flows from very Christian convictions from the Reformation. Our church and society, in many ways, is set up for pairing and coupling. We elevate marriage to be most important. We see marriage as the goal of life, as the gold standard for what it means to be fully human. But that's not the way that it's always been. For the first 1,500 years of the church, Singleness was considered the preferred state and was given massive institutional support financially, like illegally in some cases, by the church. Stanley Hauerwas, Duke Divinity professor and author, says this, one clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and all the other traditional religions is the former's entertainment of the idea that singleness as a paradigm way of life for its followers. Now, whether that singleness was voluntarily chosen or whether it was voluntarily, involuntarily imposed, whether it was temporary or long-term, a sudden event or a gradual unfolding, Christian singleness was understood within two distinct expressions of that calling. 
One was what we've called historically vowed celibacy. These are kind of professional single people. A vowed celibate was a single who makes a lifelong vow. Think monasteries, think nuns, think priests. A lifelong vow to remain single and maintain lifelong sexual abstinence as a means of living out their commitment to Christ. They do it freely in response to this God-given calling and gifting of grace. Another category is what we call dedicated celibacy. Dedicated celibates are those singles who have not necessarily made a lifelong vow to remain single, but who choose to remain sexually abstinent for as long as they're single. Their commitment to celibacy is an expression of their commitment to Christ. And many desire to marry, or at least are open to the possibility of marriage, but while they're single, they dedicate themselves single-mindedly to the kingdom and live out their calling, not in a monastery, but in the city and in the church and in the world. Paul says, that's, I think, really what Paul has in mind here. Paul says, this is the good and the better way for many people. Now, here's the question. If this calling to singleness, which is very countercultural still in our day, if it's so good, why is it so hard? Why is it so challenging? And to answer that question, I want to invite Hannah, our visiting teacher, to unpack a little bit of the challenges of the vocation of singleness. To answer the question of why there is so much pain and difficulty around our vocation, especially the vocation of singleness, I want you to remember something first. Some of our pains and temptations under the curse have nothing to do with us. They originate outside of us in other people, systems, and cultures. But there are also pains and temptations that do originate within our own sin nature. So there are external pressures and difficulties, and there are internal pressures and difficulties. Now, within 1 Corinthians 7, Paul alludes to both of these things. He alludes to the kind of external pressures and challenges that would face someone who is called to vocational singleness, And he also alludes to the internal pressures and challenges, those kinds of things that come out of our own sin nature and selfishness. But first, let's look at the external pressures. If you look at verse 36, Paul alludes to the kinds of things that might put pressure on a person to um, not be able to fulfill this vocation of singleness. Let's read it. If any man thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age of marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. Now, remember that within God's economy, both vocations of singleness and marriage are honored. Both are given credibility in scripture. And in this verse, we see that Paul is saying, if you are called to vocational singleness and you can do it, do that. But if you can't, you can marry. But what's interesting is some of his word choices. I want you to focus in on the word improperly or the usual age. He should, he feels he should marry. These kinds of words bring up the idea that there's an external system or culture or pressure that is defining what would be typical for marriage. Now, as I said, in God's economy, vocational singleness and vocational marriage are neighboring vocations, and both are honored. Even within verse 7 of this chapter, Paul writes, but each has his own gift from God. 
one person has this gift and another has that. So while we approach marriage and singleness within God's economy as neighboring vocations that are both honored, we have to remember that this is not the way the world around us approaches these vocations. This is kingdom ethic to say that vocational singleness and vocational marriage are designed to point to different things. But when we step outside of that economy and we think about how the world views marriage, it begins to be very clear why the call to vocational singleness can be hard, why there is external pressure on this call. Now, here's the point. I want you to remember how we have defined vocational singleness as kind of a prophetic disposition to the world to come, that there is something that is being testified to within the call to singleness, that this world is passing away and another world is coming, a world in which none of us will be married. But those who exist in this world don't know it's passing away. And so they will naturally celebrate and honor those vocations that support what is happening in this age. When it comes to the difference between singleness and marriage, this age is going to support marriage. It's going to end up being preferred because it establishes us within this present age. In fact, the believers at Corinth were surrounded by a great deal of pressure in this regard. Those within the Jewish subculture had the pressure of the expectation that they would marry. There was not even a word for bachelor within Hebrew. The New Encyclopedia of Judaism notes this, marriage is a commandment in Jewish tradition and celibacy is deplored. And that's nothing to speak of the broader Greco-Roman world. Within the Greco-Roman culture, there had actually been laws passed to encourage marriage and to discourage singleness. As early as 50 or 60 years prior to Paul's penning this letter, the Emperor Augustus had passed laws that made it illegal for people between the ages of 25 and 60 for men and between 25 and 50 to be unmarried. They had to be married. Also, if a woman's husband died, she had two, maybe three years in which she had to remarry. A divorced woman was only allowed 18 months that she had to get a new husband. Single people were restricted in their ability to inherit and interact in public life. And married men were given priority in government. And women with three or more children had greater freedom of movement than those with fewer children. So you can see that when Paul was writing to the believers at Corinth, encouraging them to take seriously this vocational singleness, this singularity of vision to serve God with their lives, it really wasn't culturally accepted. Now, this puts immense pressure and pain on those who are called to singleness, who are trying to hear the voice of God above the voice or culture, or in some cases, the law. Today, we don't have dictates from the law that we would marry, but we do have cultural and social expectations for marriage. Sometimes it's in broader society, but a lot of times it's within our own religious subcultures. Perhaps you've experienced this kind of pressure and the temptations that result from it. The temptation to marry, perhaps, just for the sake of marrying, rather than in response to God's call. 
making it even more difficult. The temptation is compounded by an understanding of marriage and sex that makes it a source of our self-actualization. In the Greco-Roman world, marriage was more a legal or economic proposition. Today, it has become an existential proposition. So there's also the temptation to want to marry, regardless of whether God is calling you to marriage, just to find identity and wholeness in a relational status rather than an identity as God's image bearer. And as if surrounding culture didn't make this all challenging enough to live out the vocation of singleness, we also have to affect, we have to fight the effects of the curse inside us. Because just as Paul alludes to these external pressures, he also alludes to internal pressures. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Again, Paul is not honoring one vocation over the other. He's just pointing out the particular challenges that accompany each. And when it comes to the vocation of singleness, there is a particular temptation within the realm of sexuality. And it's going to require a great deal of self-control to live in celibacy as part of the vocation of singleness. But it's larger than sexuality. There's a larger principle here about what is required of a person who is going to give their singular attention to God and to his kingdom. Remember how Paul frames marriage and singleness. They are neighboring vocations, both honored, both credible, both given by the Lord, but they point your attention in different ways. Look at how he describes it in verse 32. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. So when we're talking about vocational singleness, we're talking about being freed from these kind of present stresses of maintaining a family or pursuing to the interest of your children or spouse. And, and you have the ability and the freedom to point your energies and your attention and your focus in one direction. But here's the temptation. With that singular focus, it's very easy to turn it back on ourselves, to use the freedom from earthly concerns, to indulge our own desires and our own advancement, or as in the case of verse eight, our own sexual desires and temptations. So there are these external pressures as well as these internal pressures. And so that brings the question of how can we be redeemed from the curse, especially when it comes to our vocation of singleness. How does Jesus redeem the vocation of singleness? How does he bring honor and dignity to the calling to live prophetically within a singular vision of obedience to the Father? Well, the first and simplest and most obvious way is that Jesus lived out the vocation of singleness in his embodied life. Jesus was not married. He was not sexually active. He was a single Jewish man in a culture that didn't even have a word for bachelor. This was a scandalous thing. 
And he makes note of this in Luke 9 when he says that the foxes have dens and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And what he's alluding to there is that he doesn't have a household. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a home where he comes home to every night. Instead, he's on mission to fulfill the will of the Father. But here's something that's even more fascinating. Not only did God call Jesus to vocational singleness, but he chose to bring him into the world through a virgin, through a woman who at the time of his conception had that same singularity of focus, that she could say to God, be it unto me according to your will, not my will, not my family's will, but your will, God. And so being brought into the world through a woman who at the time of his conception was singular, Jesus went on to lead a single life as well. And using the freedom that he had not to be caught up in the domestic affairs, he devoted himself to the Father's will. John 6 says this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Pay attention to that last phrase. It's prophetically calling us to think of what is coming in the future. So he is living not only to do and complete the Father's will, but his entire life is prophesying to a coming age. It's no strange thing then that he opens his ministry with these words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In Christ Jesus, this coming age is starting to break through into the present how appropriate that Jesus, the one who was heralding the age to come, would embody this reality as a single person who was singularly devoted to the Father. This becomes even more significant when you remember that Jesus was in the royal lineage of David. If anybody would have felt pressure to marry and have children, if anybody would have felt pressure to have a family line, it would be those with royal blood in their veins who felt like they needed to keep the generations going. Instead, we see Jesus embracing his vocational signalness, answering the call to have a singularity of focus on the Father's kingdom. But he does understand and acknowledge that this is a difficult thing. While it's a good and beautiful and glorious calling, vocational singleness is difficult. And it comes with a great deal of temptations and challenges, both externally and internally. And in Matthew 19, we see Christ alluding to this. Not everyone can accept this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. Again, Jesus frames the call to vocational singleness as a gift from God, that the voice of God in the providence of your life is calling you into this prophetic role, 
but it is a difficult thing. And it's a thing that cannot be accomplished apart from his redemptive work. Because ultimately, when Jesus dies as a single person, leaving behind no biological heir, no lineage, no name for himself, it was his obedience and sacrificial life of singleness that turned everything upside down. This is how Hebrews 2 puts it. But we see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. He is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Called to physical singleness, a singleness of purpose and mind and vocation, Jesus' life became spiritually generative. It brings life to us and it testifies to a life yet to come where we will all be made like him, singular in our devotion to the Father's will. So in a world, in a church oftentimes, that idolizes romance, biological family, sexuality, Paul invites some into the vocation of singleness. Ultimately, all of us, right? We've all been single, and we all will be single again. But for a season, he invites some of us to remain single, to choose this vocation, And he gives us two reasons. Again, one, singularity of focus and vision for God and his kingdom and and working to advance his kingdom in the world. And then secondly, as Hannah alluded to and said over and over again here, that singleness is a prophetic sign of God's kingdom. It is a prophetic sign of God's love in the world. One of the most radical ways to live as a prophetic sign in the world is not to be married, it's to be single. Matter of fact, the only way that singleness even makes sense, the only way celibacy makes any sense in this world, in this age, is the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul says. The determining factor in discerning whether you're called to be married or called to be single is not just your internal desires. It's not the dominant cultural values that you swim in. It is the kingdom of God. And Paul says we must understand that this world, the form of this world, Paul says, it's passing away. That word form is the word schema. It's the word for blueprint, All the institutions, all the values of this world, the things this world values, they're passing away. When Jesus rose from the dead, when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that set in motion the future coming into the present. We've talked about that a lot the last couple of weeks. And we live in this overlap of the ages, the old ages passing away with all of its institutions and values. And through the Spirit now given to us, we live and we experience a foretaste of the future. And we live in this tension of already, but not yet. The future pulled into the present because of Jesus. And that's good news for us. And that's good news for you if you're single today. Because if the resurrection is true, it means that one day we will all be single again with God in the new creation. We will spend a lot more time being single than we ever will being married. And singleness is a way to orient ourselves towards that future kingdom. Marriage is oriented, as we'll see next week, towards the concerns of the present age. And it's good, and it's holy, and we should appreciate that, and we can value and honor that. But singleness 
is a radical prophetic sign that there is a future that is coming into the world. And so singleness and marriage are not in competition with one another. One is not better than the other. Singleness is not junior varsity, and it's not, you know, a way station to the varsity sport of marriage, right? It is a different sport altogether. It is like, you know, American football versus European football. Two different sports. One's not better than the other. And I believe for those in this room, I just want to encourage you pastorally as we kind of begin to wrap up here, that if you are single, whether you chose that singleness or that is an unwanted singleness that has been foisted on you, as Jesus says, sometimes it's foisted on us by life. Sometimes we're born with certain limitations that don't allow for us to get married and experience sexuality in that way. Sometimes it's foisted on us because we have no other options. Wherever you find yourself, I just want to say this. If you're going to resist bitterness in your vocation of singleness, if you're going to resist cynicism, if you're not going to live selfishly as the world does in its kind of freedom to singleness, which means basically I just get to do what I want, when I want, nobody can tell me what to do. That's the world's vision of singleness and freedom. If you're going to live with joy as a single person, you must internalize the reality of the resurrection. You must wake up every day and be reminded that Jesus has risen from the dead. And that means something for you because if Jesus is risen from the dead as a single man in his body, we are now living in the future reality. And the resurrection is proof that all of your sacrifices, all of your losses, all of your aches for intimacy and the unfulfilled dreams that you had on days like this for offspring of your own that may never come to fruition. It is not in vain. Singleness within the framework of the resurrection can be transformed, Paul says later on in chapter 15, from something to be pitied, which is how the world often thinks of single people, is you are to be pitied. You are to be consoled. Something is wrong with you. There's an immaturity in you. There's a deficiency in you. And we talk like this in the church too, unfortunately. Shame on us. But Paul says, now that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, be steadfast, be immovable, be unshakable in your singleness, always excelling in your singleness, Paul would say, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Because here's what the resurrection means for you in your singleness is that you are not alone. Singleness does not mean being alone. Hear me say that again as your pastor. Singleness does not mean you are alone. The resurrection means that God has given you a spiritual family. That's the whole logic of 1 Corinthians 12 is now it's not that we don't care about biological family, but it's been relativized. We now have a spiritual family that is more permanent. And sometimes there'll be overlap with our biological family, but sometimes not. Paul's logic in 1 Corinthians is he's reprioritizing our spiritual family and saying it is the thing that will not pass away. It is the thing that is eternal. The Old Testament mandate said, be fruitful and multiply, make children, procreate through your sexuality and your marriage. Jesus in the New Testament never says that. You know what Jesus says? Matthew 28, be fruitful and what? Make disciples. Everybody single or married is called to do that. We're all called to make spiritual families, to have spiritual heirs, to be spiritual fathers and mothers, bringing life into the world through making disciples. You don't need heirs as some kind of justification for your existence as a human being. You can live fully human as a single person. I love these words to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 54, 
where the prophet in a very prophetic moment says to the single person, rejoice childless one. One who did not give birth, burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor for the children of the forsaken one will be more, more than the children of the married one. There's a limit to how many physical children you can have if you're a woman. There, there, there are dozens and dozens of opportunities for you to make spiritual children as a spiritual mother and father. That should be your primary concern in this world. It's not that we don't care about children, but we put that in its place and we say, let's not just celebrate when people have physical children. There's a shaming in that that can be devastating to single people who themselves are raising up their own spiritual children but are not often recognized for the work they're doing in the church. So Christian singleness is a radical witness to a new world. It is a radical witness to the resurrection. It makes no sense if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead. But if he is, it changes everything. One verse that has meant so much to Emily and I. We have an experience. I, I've been married since I was 23. So I haven't been single. I had a brief stint in singleness in my early 20s, late teens. But I've lived as a married person for the last uh, be 17 years, June 25th. One of the things we've experienced, though, in moving to Indianapolis, not being from here, making a decision to value spiritual family. We, we left South Florida almost 10 years ago, and we could have moved back home to be in Louisville and to be with our biological family. We chose to move to Indianapolis to help partner with God to create a spiritual family. And while there's been a lot of blessings there, there have been a lot of aches. There have been a lot of pains. Like many of you make choices to move to Indiana to be close to your family. We made a choice to come here, and I don't say this to be like, oh, we're better than you, but just we choose to be here away from our biological family, and that is hard for us. And we experience the loneliness around the holidays when everybody else is doing cookouts with their families, when everybody has parents that are there to help caretake for their children. We've experienced the loneliness of feeling like we've, we've left important things, memories that we can never get back when the kids were little, time spent with grandparents that just won't be given back in this life. And there's been a verse that's been an anchor for us. And I just want to submit this to you if you are single and you are wrestling with the aches and the longings and the heartbreak of feeling like you don't fit in, you're an outsider, something's wrong with you. Listen to these words of Jesus again who lived as a single man. Mark 10, 29, he said this, I assure you, there is no one who has left household there is no one who has left brothers and sisters, nobody who's left father or mother, children or fields because of me and the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, right now in the spiritual family of the church, flesh and blood relationships and intimacy and sexuality met in pure, holy partnership and relationship with other believers who will not now receive a hundred times more houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, fields with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. Jesus sees you. He knows you. He will compensate you for every loss. Every heartache will one day be comforted. Every gap will one day be filled. You will be given now a spiritual family, the church. And that's why what we do here matters. We can't just be a consumeristic place where people come to get their needs met. They come when it's convenient because when we do that and we withdraw or we're not present to one another, we are putting single people at risk. We are putting the vulnerable at risk. 
when this becomes a society of, I'll show up when I want, I'll do what I want, but ultimately it's about me. It's about my biological family. It's about my preferences, my desires, my loyalties. We put each other at risk. And I just want to say just like a couple quick things here, and I'm going to pray, to both married people and to single people, just pastoral desires for us as we think about becoming a place where the vocations of singleness and marriage are equally honored, equally dignified, equally supported. To married people, people like me, to myself, we must aggressively reject the cultural scripts that are being handed to us by the world that singleness is second class. That the only way to live a fully human life is to be married. And we must show radical hospitality to honor the calling of our single brothers and sisters among us. Radical hospitality. It is not going to come naturally. I, I sent out a thing on social media this week, and I just said, hey, single folks in our community, what would you t- want to tell the church right now? What would you want to tell our church? And I got lots of advice, lots of feedback. But the consistent theme that came through over and over and over again from single people in our church is, please tell the church, please tell the church that you can have a full life and be single. Please tell the church not to make marriage and having biological children and sexuality the implied gold standard of maturity and godliness. Would you please tell the church that? Amen, single people in our church? Amen. Yeah. You, you, you don't sound as excited as I am. I think that is an important thing for us to remember. Singles have been treated as second-class citizens, viewed as lacking something, incomplete, immature. Something's wrong with them. Or it's all about waiting to be married. So many hurtful things that singles endure in the church, things people say with good intentions. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring you a spouse. You know, he'll bring someone special into your life. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful these little cliches. You're way too picky. You know, two Christians, what's the problem? Why aren't you married? My point is to married folks, we need to see the singles among us and honor their calling. They're not incomplete. They're not just waiting for marriage. They have a legitimate calling to advance the kingdom of God with a singularity of heart and mind and focus that we don't have as married people. So let's see them. Let's value them. Let's carry their burdens. Let's listen to them. Let's learn from them. They don't have just things to learn from us. We have lots to learn from them. They're not just glorified babysitters for us. They don't exist just to support biological families raising their children, although they may choose to do that. But let's not assume that that's their primary calling in life. Let's lament with them when things are hard. Let's advocate for them in our community and make sure they have equitable inclusion structures in the church and that they're being included in decision-making and how we organize missional communities and discipleships and our Sunday gatherings, what kind of programs and events we do or don't do. Invite them into your life is another thing kept saying from single people. Please invite us into the rhythms of your life. We want to be in your homes. We want to be with you on holidays. We want to be with you on family vacations. We want a Sabbath with you. So we got to see them and we got to honor them. We need to bring them in. Make them feel like they're full participants, citizens of the kingdom of God. To the single folks, I just want to encourage you to name your singleness as a vocation. 
It's a vocation. It's a call from God. Hear the voice of God. This is not the voice of culture. This is not the voice of your parents. This is not the voice that you're not good enough to be married. This is the call of God in your life. He has gifted you for this season. Receive that as a call. While you're single, devote yourself to God. Devote yourself to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do not put your life on hold waiting to be married. Do not engage in panicked, anxious dating because you feel like you've hit a certain age, and if you don't just start dating, you're going to be left behind. I can't tell you how many people that I see make really bad marriage decisions because they're desperate, and they feel like they've been forgotten. So let's be a place where they're not forgotten, but let's be a place where we have, as Paul says, a non-anxious presence. Let's grieve our losses. As single people, there are things that you're not going to see right now. There may be things that you never see, and it's okay. Let's lament those. Let's name those. And let's be a place where singles can discern the call of God in their lives. That's why I love Paul says, I don't have a command from Jesus. I'm just giving you my opinion. But you've got to figure this out in community. You've got to figure it out as you look around you at the cultural moment in which you live. You've got to figure this out. And the situations are so complex, right? In this passage, Paul talks about the young unmarried. He talks about the engaged. He talks about widowers and widows. He talks about the divorced. There's so much complexity in being single. Let's not reduce it down to one kind of category. So let's help each other discern that call. Why do you want to be married? Is it driven by anxiety? Is it driven by loneliness? Do you feel less than? Is there shame there? Let's talk about that. Let's discern this together. And then lastly, be intentional about community. Be intentional about your spiritual health. It is hazardous to be a single in this particular moment, both in the church and outside the church. Be intentional about community. That's the beautiful thing historically about monastic communities is they were intentional spaces with rhythms and practices for prayer and scripture reading and and communal support. And I've seen a revival in this in the last couple of decades, about the last 10 or 15 years. There are monastic communities springing up in the city all over the place where people are beginning to live in intentional community and realize I don't have to be alone and be a single. I actually need thick relationships with brothers and sisters. I need to set boundaries for myself in terms of how I serve. I need to make sure that I'm paying attention to my intimacy with God in the context of community. And so let's make sure that we're paying attention to those things and that we as a church are equipping you for the calling and being intentional about creating those spaces where you can be known and you can be loved and you can be commissioned for the ministry that God has for you. We're out of time. Let me pray for us. And then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for this call to singleness. Thank you that you honor, that you dignify that you embodied it as you came, God, in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. You showed us what it means to be fully human, to be single, to experience temptation, and yet to be without sin, to love others with all of your heart, and to love God with all of your heart. Jesus, you've shown us the way, and you've made it possible for us through your death and resurrection to experience the power that we need to live resurrection lives right now. And so God, help us to begin to be a community of practice, practicing that way together, equipping each other, singles and marrieds, for the work that you have for us, being a safe place to wrestle with all of the pain, all the heartache, all the loss, all the loneliness, and to celebrate all the good, all the joy 
all the victories, all the opportunities that come with being single. It is a beautiful calling, God. And as Jesus says, help those of us who are there to receive it as a gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.